Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 26 will be the focus of our study this morning. We actually started the study last Sunday. We will complete it this morning. Here's what Jesus said. He was saying to all of them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he's the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Now, to the contemporary Christian church, these words of Jesus sound very strange. Strange indeed, almost as if they belong, folks, to another era, another, another period of church history. Why is that? Why do these words sound so out of place? Well, certainly it's not because these truths about dying to self and taking up one's cross are unique and seldom mentioned in the New Testament. Not at all. The truth of the matter is that the New Testament is full of references to denying oneself, to taking up one's cross, to following Jesus. For example, the Lord spoke of this in Matthew chapter 10, verses 38-39, when in speaking to his 12 apostles, Jesus said, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And he who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Again, in Luke chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus said similar words. He said, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And still again, during the Passion Week, the week leading up to our Lord's death, Jesus said these words in John chapter 12, verse 25. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. And in light of the fact that we know that the New Testament does not record all of the words and all of the works of Jesus during his three-year earthly ministry, we know that because at the end of the Gospel of John, we're told that it is very likely then that the Lord repeated these words, this message about the high cost of being one of his disciples. We know that the Lord must have repeated this many times throughout his ministry. It must have been a reoccurring message that Jesus repeated often in his preaching and teaching. So in light of all this, we need to understand that our passage here in Luke chapter 9 is not an isolated text of unfamiliarity, something the Christian community just hasn't been exposed to because these words of Jesus are found numerous times in the New Testament. So then, if that's the case, and it is, I ask again, why do these words sound so out of place and foreign to us? Well, there's a reason, and the reason is because these words stress a message of commitment to Jesus Christ that is seldom heard amongst American Christians and certainly isn't emphasized in most of our evangelical churches today. And that's because the emphasis today in many evangelical churches, if not the vast majority of them, is just to get a person to make a decision for Christ and it matters very little if that decision has any impact upon their lives as long as they've prayed a prayer of salvation, as long as they've raised a hand in church indicating some type of a spiritual decision or they proceeded forward in response to an altar call, then they're told they're all right. Everything is good with their soul. They need not consider anything else in terms of the gospel impacting the way they live. Now, folks, that's the message that is so often proclaimed in Bible-believing churches concerning becoming a Christian. And tragically, tragically, it has produced a generation of people who think they're saved when they are not saved. One Bible teacher put it this way, he said, self-focus is part of our modern evangelical identity. This is why increasing numbers of evangelical Christians care little about the glory of God or reaching out to a lost world. For them, Christianity exists to enhance their lives, their marriages, their bank accounts, their prestige. 
But to bear a cross, to pay a price for standing for Christ, no thanks. But listen, that wasn't the message of salvation that Jesus gave to the people of his day. That was not the gospel of Christ. He called them to follow him. Follow him day in and day out with loyalty, with allegiance, with devotion, with submission, with commitment to his authority over every area of their lives. He told them that if they wanted to be his disciples and they needed to follow him. And doing so would mean suffering for his sake. Suffering, not financial prosperity or a guarantee of good health or increasing self-esteem. This contemporary day emphasis on what the gospel can do for you rather than on daily commitment to Christ, it just isn't the Christianity of the Bible. Back in the year 1968, which seems a long time ago, but for some of us who have lived a long life, it doesn't seem that far back, but back in 1968, pastor and theologian and scholar Dr. James Montgomery Boyce Even back then, he recognized this serious problem in evangelical churches, and he addressed the issue of this problem in a book he wrote on the subject. It's called Christ's Call to Discipleship. If you can get it, I would encourage you to do so. Christ's Call to Discipleship. At the beginning of this book, Dr. Boyce wrote these words. I quote, he said, there is a defect, even a fatal defect in the life of the church of Christ in the 20th century, a lack of true discipleship. For the genuine Christian, discipleship means forsaking everything to follow Christ. But for many of today's supposed Christians, perhaps the majority, it is the case that while there is much talk about Christ and even much furious activity that is supposed to be done in his name, there is actually very little following of Christ himself. And that means that in some circles, at least there is very little genuine Christianity. Many who fervently call him Lord, Lord are not Christians. End of quote. Now, in the verses before us this morning, here in Luke chapter 9, which as I said is a continuation of our study from last Sunday, we hear Jesus telling his disciples, as well as the multitude of people around him who would have been residents from the area in Israel back then, known as Caesarea Philippi, he's telling them about the high cost and the demands of being one of his followers, of being his disciple. As I told you last week, he lays out these truths in a very neat and orderly and organized manner. First, in verse 23, he gives three requirements for being one of his disciples, which are, number one, he said you must deny yourself, meaning you must say no to the idolatry of self-centeredness. You must turn away from yourself being on the throne of your life to Jesus Christ being on his throne over your life. That's the first requirement, Jesus said, of, of a true disciple. Number two, you must take up your cross daily, meaning that you must be willing to be persecuted, and even willing to die for the sake of Christ. It doesn't mean you're going to die for him. It just means you are certainly willing to do that, if that's his will for you. While the Romans made crucified victims carry their own cross to the place where they would be executed, Jesus calls us, not in a forced way, but to voluntarily surrender ourselves so that we are willing to suffer any indignity that might come to us following a despised and suffering and rejected Messiah, even death if necessary. Number three, he said, you must follow me. This is simply a call to a lifestyle of obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So with an attitude of surrender to his lordship, And with our cross in our arms, we start marching right behind Christ, coming after him with a commitment to obey him daily as Lord of our lives. In other words, just as Jesus marched to his death out of obedience to his Father's will, so we follow Christ as obedient disciples of his. So, Having then laid out these three requirements for being one of his disciples, what the Lord now does is he proceeds in the next few verses to give us several reasons for being one of his disciples. That is to say, Jesus tells us why we should deny ourselves, why we should take up our cross, and why we should follow him. See, each of the next three verses, verses 24 
through 26, they start, each of them starts with the word for, which indicates that the Lord is about to explain something. The Lord is laying down now some tangible reasons as to why we should follow him as his disciples. In other words, he's telling us that though he knows that the cost and demands of discipleship are high, he knows that. He set the bar high. There are some significant incentives, some significant reasons that should encourage us to become one of his disciples, no matter how hard it is. Now, folks, this is an extremely important issue for each of us to understand and to grasp because it answers for us the basic question, why should I leave the security and comfort of running my own life for a commitment to following a despised and rejected Lord? Why should I turn over the reins of my life to a master who may lead me to die for him? See, those who are not presently his disciples, they certainly need to understand these reasons for becoming one of Christ's disciples because in these verses, Jesus addresses the rationality, the logic, the reasonableness of why someone should deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. So, in essence, in these verses, Jesus is saying to every unbeliever, you should become one of my followers because it makes so much sense to be one of my followers. It's rational, it's sensible, it's reasonable. And here's why. But in in addition, these truths about discipleship are also so important for those of us who already know Christ, those of us who are already his disciples. And they're important to us for two reasons. First of all, because these reasons for being a disciple of Christ should become part of our approach to evangelizing unbelievers. So that we not only tell them the saving message of the gospel, but we also tell them the various reasons Jesus gave for why they should come to him for salvation. In other words, these reasons for being a follower of Jesus become part of our gospel witness, part of our gospel arsenal as we compel people to come to Christ, showing them why it's so important for them to become Christians. You explain the gospel. Now let me tell you why it's so important that you respond to the gospel. But in addition, it's important for those of us who know Christ to understand these reasons Jesus gave for following him because they serve as an affirmation, as an encouragement for us, for the hard road that we often find ourselves on in following him. It's just very, just very helpful, very encouraging for us to be reminded that the high cost of being one of Christ's disciples, it's worth it. It's worth it. All the suffering is worth it. And each of these reasons accomplish that. They tell us why it's worth it. So with this as our background, we're now ready to delve into our text and discover the reasons that Jesus gave for why you and I should be one of his disciples. There are three of these reasons, and the first one being this. Your eternal destiny depends upon it. Your eternal destiny depends upon you being a disciple of Christ. Verse 24. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he's the one who will save it. Now Jesus presents his first reason for being one of his disciples. He presents it in the form of a paradox, which at first glance looks like a really hard and and complex concept to grasp. But trust me, it's not. The Lord is simply making a basic statement that what we do with our lives now, today, affects our eternal destiny tomorrow in the future. You see, when he says whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, he simply means if you hold on to your life now, in this lifetime, by not denying yourself and accepting the demands of becoming one of my disciples, then you will lose your life later by dying and passing into eternal ruin. But if you are willing to lose your life now, in this lifetime, by denying yourself and becoming one of my disciples, then you will preserve your life forever in eternal life and glory. Now, it's important that we understand that when Jesus speaks of losing one's life for his sake, he's not referring here to dying physically as a martyr. 
Losing our lives is the Lord's way of saying that we have denied ourselves by giving the rule of our lives over to him rather than running our lives by the dictates of our own self-will and desires. So the point that Jesus is making is that if you decide to maintain a self-centered life now and you refuse his demands of discipleship, then you will ultimately lose your life in the sense of going to hell when you die. On the other hand, if you give your life over to him now, in this lifetime, by trusting him for salvation, as you accept the demands, the high cost of discipleship, then you will ultimately preserve your life by going to heaven when you die. And I remind you again that in talking about discipleship, Jesus is talking here about salvation, not some higher degree of sanctification reserved for those Christians who want to live at a deeper level of holiness and devotion. If this were merely a question of whether or not you're going to live on a higher level of commitment and devotion to him than other believers, Jesus would never then speak of it in terms of losing your life because genuine believers don't lose their salvation. No, the issue here is clearly salvation, not sanctification, because Jesus is saying that what you do with him now determines your eternal destiny. Folks, this isn't something to trifle with. Because there are many individuals who think they are believers when in reality they are not. And I can say that because while they may have made some type of profession of faith in Christ, they have never denied themselves, they have never taken up their cross, and they simply don't follow Christ. They've never even heard of these demands of Jesus because most churches don't preach about this. They skirt the issue. So they are content to profess to believe in Christ, but they live exactly as they choose to live with his word making absolutely no dent in their lives, no impact in their lives. They don't care what his word says. So if you're not yet a disciple of Christ, why should you become one? You should become his disciples because to refuse to do so is to lose your own soul for all of eternity. And nothing is worse than that. Absolutely nothing. You see, every person is faced with a choice. You can go for it now by living a self-centered life of pursuing pleasure and lose your soul forever or you can forsake living for yourself now and gain eternal life forever. I love the way that the martyred missionary Jim Elliot put it. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He was absolutely right. You see, Jesus calls us to give our lives away to him. And if you do that, you will never regret it because you will gain eternal life in heaven. And nothing, nothing is more important than that. Folks, this is the reasonableness of the gospel. Why would you hold on to anything of this life's worldly pleasures and pursuits that only last a little while. They're, they're like a vapor of steam that passes quickly and is seen no more. Why would you hold on to that and forfeit your soul for all of eternity forever and ever without any reprieve? It makes no sense. It's not rational thinking. It's not logical thinking. It's not reasonable thinking. It's not sensible thinking. And yet, sadly, this is the choice that most people make. They are not willing to give up their lives in pursuing the accumulation of things that they think will make them happy. Why? Because they love their sin. They love their sin so much that they refuse to stop living for themselves. Jesus said, men love darkness rather than light. But for those of you who have given your life to Christ... To those who have embraced these high demands of being one of his disciples with all the suffering and all the pain that often goes with being a disciple, let me encourage you by reminding you it's worth it. It's worth it. All of it is worth it. 
Not only are you going to heaven when you die, where you will live in glory for all of eternity, but in heaven you are going to experience the glory of what it means to be perfected without any sinful defects, without any struggles with sin, in perfect Christ-like character. Can you imagine that? This is exactly what the Apostle Paul was talking about when he wrote in Romans 8, 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The glory, meaning Christ-like perfection. Listen, no matter how much suffering you experience in this world because of your commitment to Christ, Paul said it cannot be compared to the glory you will experience in the future. So take heart and keep following Jesus. As that great old hymn reminds us, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. So the first reason that our Lord gives for being one of his disciples is simply this, your eternal destiny depends on it. But as he continues, the Lord proceeds to give a second reason for being one of his disciples, which is because of the value of your soul. He tells us the value of your soul is priceless. Verse 25. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Now, these words, the Lord moves from speaking a paradox about losing your life to gain your life to speaking in what's known as a hyperbole. A hyperbole is an obvious exaggeration to make a point. It's not simply an exaggeration. It's an obvious one to make a point. And here's the point that Jesus is making. He says, imagine if you had everything. Not simply everything you wanted, but every single thing that this world has to offer. This is what Jesus means by gains the whole world. Imagine if you had all the money, the pleasures, the resources, everything. It all belongs to you. If that were the case, and you could possess everything in this world, then what lasting benefit would there be if in gaining the whole world, you lost your own soul? You see, when Jesus says the words, loses or forfeits himself, he's not referring to losing one's physical life. He's referring to something far greater than that. He's referring to losing one's soul for all of eternity. And we know that this is the case because that's exactly how Matthew presents it in his account of this very same passage. Matthew records Jesus as saying, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You see, what Jesus wants us to realize is that there is nothing in this world that is as valuable as your eternal soul. Even if you possessed everything, there is nothing worth possessing if it would mean forfeiting your own soul because there is nothing as valuable as your soul. It is a priceless treasure. Now understand that Jesus is not condemning being wealthy. He's not condemning possessing material things. Scripture never condemns money or being wealthy. It does condemn the love of money, but not money itself. Money is neutral. That great man of faith, Abraham, he was a very wealthy man, as was Barnabas in the early days of the New Testament church. And there are many Christians today who have considerable wealth, and they honor the Lord with their wealth, and they should never be condemned because they have a lot of possessions. See, what Jesus is condemning is the person who lives to accumulate things, who pursues getting rich and accumulating as much as he can, but to the neglect of his own soul. That's what he's condemning. And to that person who lives to possess more and more material goods, he says that even if you were to succeed in accumulating everything, so what? So what? Because when you die, you will lose not only all of your worldly possessions, but you will lose the most priceless treasure of all, your own soul. Scripture actually gives us an example of a man who lived like this. His whole orientation, his whole thrust of life was to gain as much as he could, but in doing so, 
Tragically, he lost his own soul for all of eternity. Jesus spoke about this man in a parable in Luke chapter 12. Beginning with verse 16, we read this. And he told them a parable saying the land of a rich man was very productive and he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones and there I will store all of my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Now Jesus referred to this man. He said God called him a fool. And he was right. He was a fool because he did the most foolish thing that anyone could possibly do. He neglected his own soul. It's downright foolish. He did it all for the pursuit of temporary wealth, which is here today, and folks, it is gone tomorrow. Listen, don't be a fool like this man. Don't let his situation be your situation. There is nothing so valuable, nothing so important in this world that is worth forfeiting your soul for. Nothing. Nothing is so dear, nothing is so precious in this world that it's worth losing your soul over because it just meant so much to you that you had to have it and it became an idol to you and you you wouldn't give it up and it kept you from giving your life to Christ. It's just not worth it. Once again, it is illogical. It is unreasonable. It makes no sense. In his commentary on the Gospel of Luke, Bible teacher Kent Hughes, he gives us another example of a rich man who was a fool because though he gained much, he forfeited his soul. It's a bit of a lengthy quote, but it's well worth it. He said, 180 years after the death of Charlemagne, let me stop here and say Charlemagne was the emperor of much of Europe from 768 to 814 A.D., So 180 years after the death of Charlemagne, about the year 1000, officials of the Emperor Otho opened the great king's tomb where in addition to incredible treasures, they saw an amazing sight, the skeletal remains of King Charlemagne seated on a throne. His crown still on his skull, a copy of the Gospels lying in his lap with his bony finger resting on the text, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? He continues, one might think that the teaching of Holy Scripture and the repeated examples of history, such as Charlemagne's, would convince modern men and women that keepers are losers. Not so. Consider the case of W. Somerset Maugham, the most famous author of the 1930s. He was an accomplished novelist, playwright, and short story writer. His novel of human bondage is a classic. His play, The Constant Wife, has gone through thousands of stagings. He was a man who lived for his own refined taste, comforts, and sensualities. In 1965, at the age of 91, he was still a fabulously rich man, although he had not written a word in years. He still received over 300 fan letters a week. But what had life brought W. Somerset Maugham? What did he have of lasting value? The London Times quoted his nephew, Robert, Mom, I looked around the drawing room at the immensely valuable furniture and pictures and objects that Willie's success had enabled him to acquire. I remembered that the villa itself and the wonderful garden I could see through the windows, a fabulous setting on the edge of the Mediterranean, were worth 600,000 pounds. Willie had 11 servants, including his cook, Annette, who was the envy of all the other millionaires on the Riviera, He dined off of silver plates, waited on by Marius, his butler, and Henry, his footman, but it no longer meant anything to him. The following afternoon, I found Willie reclining on a sofa, peering through his spectacles at a Bible which had very large print. He looked horribly wrinkled, and his face was grim, and he said to me, I've been reading the Bible you gave me, and I've come across the quotation, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? I must tell you, my dear nephew, that the text used to hang opposite my bed when I was a child. Of course, it's all a lot of bunk, but the thought of it is quite interesting all the same. 
And then Kent Hughes concludes the story of Somerset Maugham by telling us, said Robert Maugham, his nephew, goes on to describe an empty, bitter old man who repeatedly cried in terror, go away, go away, I'm not ready, I'm not dead yet, I'm not dead yet, I tell you. He was a man who had gained the whole world but lost his own soul, a keeper who lost. What a tragic story of a man who had it all but who really had nothing of lasting value because he lost the most precious thing in the universe, his soul. What lasting benefit are all of Somerset Maugham's possessions now? He's in torment today in hell and his possessions are long gone, probably being enjoyed by somebody else. So I told you a few minutes ago, nothing is so dear, nothing is so precious in this world that it's worth losing your soul over. That's the argument that Jesus is presenting. This is why in Matthew's account of this passage, he records the Lord asking these words, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And the answer is, what will he give in exchange for his soul? Absolutely nothing. He can't. What could possibly be more worthwhile in this world than your soul? Certainly not money. Certainly not business success, certainly not popularity, certainly not physical pleasure, nothing. You see, to gain every possession of this world, but to be without Christ is to have nothing of real, lasting value. But to abandon everything by denying yourself for the sake of Christ is to have the true riches of eternal life. Many years ago, an atheist, an atheist wrote an article that captured the heart of what Jesus was talking about in gaining the whole world but losing one's own soul. Now, although this man didn't believe in God's existence, he did understand something. He understood the high demands of Christ that Christ puts upon others to be one of his disciples. Now, in this article I'm about to read to you, this man, this atheist, he uses the word religion like we might use the term saved or have a relationship with Christ. So if you just keep that in mind, you'll get the gist of what he's saying, the point that he is making. Here's what this atheist wrote. He said, if I firmly believed as millions say they do, that the knowledge and practice of religion in this life influences destiny in another, then religion would mean to me everything. I would cast away earthly enjoyments as dross, earthly cares as, as follies, and earthly thoughts and feelings as vanity. Religion would be my first waking thought and my last image before sleep sank me into unconsciousness. I should labor in its cause alone. I would take thought for the morrow of eternity alone. I would esteem one soul gained for heaven worth a life of suffering. Earthly consequences would never stay my hand or seal my lips. Earth, its joys and its griefs would occupy no moment of my thoughts. I would strive to look upon eternity alone and on the immortal souls around me, soon to be everlastingly happy or everlastingly miserable. I would go forth to the world and preach to it in season and out of season. And my text would be, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And here was an atheist who understood this. He didn't believe it. He didn't believe a word of the gospel, but he understood what Jesus was talking about. And he's telling us that if he did believe it, he would follow Christ with all of his heart and not let anything keep him from losing his soul. Now, one man who actually did deny himself by abandoning the pursuit of the world's riches was the great lawgiver, Moses. Here's what we read about Moses, that great man of God in Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 24 and following says, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And what we read here is that Moses gave up all the wealth that Egypt had to offer because he understood the value of his soul and so he followed the Lord rather than pursuing the passing pleasures of sin. And that's exactly what Jesus calls you to do. So I wonder if some of you who have never trusted Christ 
for salvation. I wonder if you really understand the value of your soul, that immaterial part of you that lives on forever. There is nothing, nothing worth losing your soul over because it is eternal. It will never cease to exist. When you die, it does not die. And in everything in this world, all possessions, all successes, they will cease to exist. Here's the way the Apostle Paul put it in 1 Timothy 6, 7. For we have brought nothing into this world and we cannot take anything out of it either. Someone said, well, how much did he leave behind? Everything. You're not taking anything with you except your soul. So there's nothing you're taking out of this world when you die but your eternal soul. So make sure you don't forfeit your soul for pursuing those things that will someday fade away and cease to exist. As John MacArthur put it, he said, nothing in the world is of comparable value to a person's eternal soul. So why should you be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Because your eternal destiny depends upon it. And because the value of your soul is priceless. But there's a third reason Jesus gave for being one of his disciples, and that is, there is a coming future judgment for those who reject him. There is a coming future judgment for those who reject him. Verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Now with these words, Jesus tells us that in the future, in the future, he is going to return to earth in all of his divine glory. That glory that was covered while he was here in human flesh. It's going to shine forth along with the glory of the Father and the glory of the holy angels. And in that glorified state, as the great judge of the universe, he will judge certain people. And who will those certain people be? Those, he says, are those who are ashamed of him and his words. So what does he mean by this? Ashamed of him and his words. Well, let me tell you what he does not mean. He's not talking about a Christian who at times struggles with taking a stand for Christ. We all do at times. He's not talking about an isolated incident where a believer in Christ was embarrassed to speak up and witness for him. We've all experienced that. He's not talking about a true Christian who had a momentary lapse of courage and didn't let others know he was a Christian. He's not even talking about someone who's a silent disciple afraid to let others know of their faith in Jesus because they don't want to be thought of as strange or odd or weird. He's not talking about that. Listen closely. When Jesus speaks of those who are ashamed of him and his words, he isn't talking about anybody who's a true, genuine disciple of his. He's referring to those who are not his disciples, those who have refused to do what he told them to do in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. In other words, he's referring to those who have rejected him. Those who have refused to be identified with a suffering savior, a Messiah who was ridiculed and scorned and killed because the authorities thought he was a lying blasphemer. You see, in this context, the word ashamed does not mean to be embarrassed. It means to reject Christ. It means to deny him. To deny him as anybody who's important, anybody who's significant. It means to refuse his call to become one of his followers. It means to reject him as your Lord, your Savior, your Master. This is precisely the attitude of unbelievers who know the message of the gospel. They understand, they've heard the message of the cross, but they reject it. Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 and 23. He said, for the word of the cross, that's the message about Christ dying for sinners, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. Paul tells us that the world, and by world he means the world of unbelievers, of specifically those who have heard about Christ, those who have heard the message of the cross, but they reject it. They've heard it. They've heard that the cross is the only hope of salvation, the only way to be forgiven of their sins, the only way to be right with God. But they not only reject it, they think it's utter nonsense. They see it as complete foolishness that the death of a first century itinerant poor Jewish rabbi could bring them forgiveness of their sins forever and the only hope of going to heaven when they die. 
They think that's, that's ridiculous. In fact, they are offended by this message of the cross because the cross declares to them that they're sinners in need of a savior and they don't want to think of themselves as being that bad. Maybe they've done a few things wrong, but they're not that bad that they need salvation. So they're offended by it. They think it's foolish. They consider the message complete nonsense. That's not true, though, Paul said, of Christ's followers. Of those of us who know him, we know that the message of the cross is God's power to save us. We know that. We glory in that. Therefore, we have followed this crucified Savior. And we're not ashamed of him. We love him and we glory in the cross because it is the basis for our salvation. But Jesus said that this isn't the case of those who are not his disciples. They are ashamed of him and ashamed of his words and they reject him. And because of this, note this, he said he would be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory. And by his glory, as I said, he means when he returns to earth, he will be in this glorified state so that the fullness of divine Shekinah glory will be on display for all to see. No longer will he be the suffering savior who men scoffed at and humiliated during his three-year earthly ministry. Instead, he will be the majestic Lord in all of his glory. And at that time, he says, at that time, he will be ashamed of those who were ashamed of him and rejected him. So what does Jesus mean by this? He means that he is going to judge, punish, condemn those who are not his followers. In other words, just as they rejected him, so he will reject them. They're ashamed of him, he's ashamed of them. In John chapter 5, Jesus made the statement that it's not the Father who judges anyone. He said, he has handed all judgment to me. Two times Jesus said this. In John chapter 5, verse 22, he said, for not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. When unbelievers face judgment, they will face the face of the Son of God. But then Jesus gave another statement, a significant one about being the judge. In verse 27, speaking of the Father, Jesus said, and he gave him, the Father gave Christ, him, authority to execute judgment because he is, he said, the Son of Man. Now folks, that's very significant. This expression, Son of Man, is not only an Old Testament title for the Messiah, but when used in connection with judgment, it points to an Old Testament text that all Jewish people of that day would have been very familiar with, and that text is Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Daniel said, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. And myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. Now these verses describe God the Father called here the ancient of days because he is eternal. He has always been here. And he is wise and holy and honorable And it's a court scene in which judgment is about to take place as the books were opened. But as we continue reading, we see it isn't the Father who judges anyone, but someone else is the judge. We look a few verses later, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I kept looking at the night visions, Daniel said, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now folks, these verses describe Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man, as God the Father gives him his eternal kingdom. And it's at that time when Jesus receives his eternal kingdom that he will judge all those who were ashamed of him and rejected him. Now, Daniel doesn't tell us what this will be like, but John the Apostle does in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. He describes this judgment in sobering and terrifying language. 
Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And what John the Apostle describes here is known as the great white throne judgment because Jesus is presented to us here sitting upon a great white throne, a throne that is perfectly white and reflects his character, majestic, pure, holy. He tells us that Christ is so majestic, so pure, so holy, that the present universe as we know it, contaminated by sin, it flees from his presence. It just, it means it ceases to exist. And then the judgment of unbelievers begins, in which all the dead unbelieving dead will appear before him. So who are these people and what happens to them at the great white throne judgment? Well, my wife Michelle recently taught about this to the ladies of our church in the Insight for Ladies Bible Study. So I'm going to quote from her notes because I couldn't describe this any better. Now, she learned a lot from Bible teacher Steve Lawson. So what you're about to hear is a combination of Michelle and Steve Lawson. We want to give credit where credit is due. So here's what she said in explaining the great white throne judgment. All of those gathered are the ones who had no part in the first resurrection. The unsaved dead are not resurrected until after the millennial kingdom. Each one must stand before God for their final judgment. Their bodies have been resurrected to join their spirits that have been in Hades all of these years. This includes all of the people from the Old Testament era, all those who died in the flood, every person from every walk in life that has ever lived on this planet. The great and the small means every level of society, the political leaders, military leaders, those who had great power while on earth and those who were the unknown, people in the background who lived quietly and humbly. These are all the people who put off making a decision to follow Christ because they just wanted to enjoy some fun and freedom while they lived. The people who sadly were deceived into thinking they're good would outweigh their bad, so they believed they were okay. Books were opened in this court of judgment. As each person stands alone in their resurrected bodies before the judge, he'll reveal every deed, thought, and action from their lifetime. Every sin will be brought out into the open, every careless word, every lie, every theft, every curse word, every prideful thought, every moment of self-love and self-promotion, every bitter word and thought, every explosive temper tantrum, every moment of arrogance and prejudice, every sexual sin, all exposed. We know that to fail to keep the law of God in one area makes us guilty of breaking every law of God. Mountains of sins recorded in books in each case is presented by Jesus, the judge and prosecuting attorney. Every person will be judged according to their deeds. There is no mercy here. Rather, every single sin will get a corresponding punishment. All sins will be judged fairly and to the full extent of the law. Those with greater light will be given greater punishment and suffering. Jesus said it would be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for those people and communities who had the light of the truth given to them and they rejected it. The Bible teaches degrees of suffering in the lake of fire. Those who grew up hearing the truth from parents, from their churches and friends who walk away will suffer more than the person who never had the opportunity to hear about Jesus. Can you even try to imagine each person listening to the judgment pronounced one after the other as each stands before God to hear the review of their life? Verses 13 and 14 say, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Before the sea was uncreated, it gave up all who had ever died in it. 
God has the infinite power. So it's nothing for him to resurrect bodies for those who drowned in the sea and all those at the flood who died in the fury of those seas. Every person who had been in Hades is given a resurrected body in order to stand and be judged according to their deeds. This new body they receive will be one that is able to endure fire and brimstone, agony unspeakable that will not kill them. This is real fire on real people forever and ever. The flame never extinguishes. This is the second death. The judge of the universe has rendered his verdict. Those who die in their sins will experience the second death in the lake of fire forever. As Steve Lawson puts it, this is the white hot lava of God's judgment. Verse 15 says, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Will anyone have sorrow over their sin? Will anyone desire to repent? No. They're angry with God that he has sentenced them there. There will be no moment of relief. They have been given bodies equipped to endure their particular level of suffering and judgment. This outer darkness means total isolation in their personal torment. No one to talk to, no one to share stories with. Folks, is there any greater reason Any greater reason than this to become a disciple and follower of Jesus Christ? If you don't follow him now, he will reject you. He will judge you. And you will have to spend eternity in the lake of fire without any hope, any hope of ever getting released from that torment. So while you still have time, while you still have the opportunity now, Come to Christ for salvation. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. You know the truth. You know the gospel. You know that you're a sinner in need of a savior. Come to him today. Trust his death on the cross for your salvation as you come with an attitude of denying yourself, taking up your cross and following him. If you would like to talk to someone about this, see me, please see me. As we close the service, let's pray. Our Father, these are some of the hardest words of the New Testament, but they are your words, Lord Jesus, and we would never compromise them. We would never soften them. We would never, we would never lighten them. They are intended to be hard. They are intended to show us the logic of your argument, Lord, the reasonableness of being one of your followers. And I pray, Lord, for those who sit here week after week or who watch on live stream and yet still, still have never trusted you, never repented of their sin, never turned to Christ. Lord, I pray that you'll shatter all of their arguments this morning as, they, as they've been exposed to the reasonableness of the gospel, the sensibility of the gospel. I pray you'll draw them to yourself. I pray that today will be the day of their salvation. And Lord, for those of us who have followed you, May your words encourage us. It will be worth it all, though there is pain in this world and it does cost something to follow you. It does cost popularity and sometimes health and esteem of others and sometimes we are the ridicule of our friends and family members, but it is so worth it all because someday we'll be sitting at your feet in glory, soaking up your presence, Lord. It will be worth it all when we see you. All of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.